Welcome back, everyone, to Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes, Chapter 20, Heredity. When Jane realized that she was being borne away a captive by the strange forest creature who had rescued her from the clutches of the ape, she struggled desperately to escape, but the strong arms that held her as easily as though she had been but a day-old babe only pressed a little more tightly. So presently she gave up the futile effort and lay quietly, looking through half-closed lids at the face of the man who strode easily through the tangled undergrowth with her. The face above her was one of extraordinary beauty, a perfect type of the strongly masculine, unmarred by dissipation or brutal or degrading passions. For though Tarzan of the Apes was a killer of men and of beasts, he killed as the hunter kills, dispassionately, except on those rare occasions when he had killed for hate, though not brooding, malevolent hate which marks the features of its own with hideous lines. When Tarzan killed, he more often smiled than scowled, and smiles are the foundation of beauty. One thing the girl had noticed particularly when she had seen Tarzan rushing upon Turkaz, the vivid scarlet band upon his forehead from above the left eye to the scalp, but now as she scanned his features, she noticed that it was gone, and only a thin white line marked the spot where it had been. As she lay more quietly in his arms, Tarzan slightly relaxed his grip upon her. Once he looked down into her eyes and smiled, and the girl had to close her own to shut out the vision of that handsome, winning face. Presently Tarzan took to the trees, and Jane, wondering that she felt no fear, began to realize that in many respects she had never felt more secure in her whole life than now as she lay in the arms of this strong, wild creature being born, God alone knew where or to what fate, deeper and deeper into the savage fastness of the untamed forest. When, with closed eyes, she commenced to speculate upon the future, and terrifying fears were conjured by a vivid imagination, she had but to raise her lids and look upon that noble face so close to hers to dissipate the last remnant of apprehension. No, he could never harm her. Of that, she was convinced when she translated the fine features and the frank brave eyes above her into the chivalry which they proclaimed. On and on they went through what seemed to Jane a solid mass of verdure, yet ever there appeared to open before this forest god a passage, as by magic, which closed behind them as they passed. Scarce a branch scraped against her, yet above and below, before and behind, the view presented naught but a solid mass of inextricably interwoven branches and creepers. As Tarzan moved steadily onward, his mind was occupied with many strange and new thoughts. Here was a problem the like of which he had never encountered, and he felt, rather than reasoned, that he must meet it as a man and not as an ape. The free movement through the middle terrace, which was the route he had followed for the most part, had helped to cool the ardor of the first fierce passion of his newfound love. Now he discovered himself speculating upon the fate which would have fallen to the girl had he not rescued her from Turkaz. He knew why the ape had not killed her, and he commenced to compare his intentions with those of Turkaz. True, it was the order of the jungle for the male to take his mate by force, but could Tarzan be guided by the laws of the beasts? Was not Tarzan a man? But what did men do? He was puzzled, for he did not know. He wished that he might ask the girl, and then it came to him that she had already answered him in the futile struggle she had made to escape and to repulse him. But now they had come to their destination, and Tarzan of the Apes, with Jane in his strong arms, swung lightly to the turf to the arena where the great apes held their councils and danced the wild orgy of the dum-dum. Though they had come many miles, it was still but mid-afternoon, and the amphitheater was bathed in the half-light which filtered through the maze of the encircling foliage. The green turf looked soft and cool and inviting. The myriad noises of the jungle seemed far distant and hushed to a mere echo of blurred sounds, rising and falling like the surf upon a remote shore. A feeling of dreamy peacefulness stole over Jane as she sank down upon the grass where Tarzan had placed her, and as she looked up at his great figure towering above her, 
there was an added strange sense of perfect security. As she watched him from beneath half-closed lids, Tarzan crossed the little circular clearing toward the trees upon the further side. She noted the graceful majesty of his carriage, the perfect symmetry of his magnificent figure, and the poise of his well-shaped head upon his broad shoulders. What a perfect creature! There could be naught of cruelty or baseness beneath that godlike exterior. Never, she thought, had such a man strode the earth since God created the first in his own image. With a bound, Tarzan sprang into the trees and disappeared. Jane wondered where he had gone. Had he left her there to her fate in the lonely jungle? She glanced nervously about. Every vine and bush seemed but the lurking place of some huge and horrible beast waiting to bury gleaming fangs into her soft flesh. Every sound she magnified into the stealthy creeping of a sinuous and malignant body. How different now that he had left her. For a few minutes that seemed hours to the frightened girl. She sat with tense nerves, waiting for the spring of the crouching thing that was to end her misery of apprehension. She almost prayed for the cruel teeth that would give her unconsciousness and surcease from the agony of fear. She heard a sudden, slight sound behind her. With a cry, she sprang to her feet and turned to face her end. There stood Tarzan, his arms filled with ripe and luscious fruit. Jane reeled and would have fallen had not Tarzan, dropping his burden, caught her in his arms. She did not lose consciousness, but she clung tightly to him, shuddering and trembling like a frightened deer. Tarzan of the apes stroked her soft hair and tried to comfort and quiet her as Kala had him, when, as a little ape, he had been frightened by Saber the lioness, or Hista the snake. Once he pressed his lips lightly upon her forehead, and she did not move, but closed her eyes and sighed. She could not analyze her feelings, nor did she wish to attempt it. She was satisfied to feel the safety of those strong arms, and to leave her future to fate, for the last few hours had taught her to trust this strange, wild creature of the forest as she would have trusted but few of the men of her acquaintance. As she thought of the strangeness of it, there commenced to dawn upon her the realization that she had, possibly, learned something else which she had never really known before. Love. She wondered, and then she smiled. And still smiling, she pushed Tarzan gently away, and looking at him with a half-smiling, half-quizzical expression that made her face wholly entrancing, she pointed to the fruit upon the ground, and seated herself upon the edge of the earthen drum of the anthropoids, for hunger was asserting itself. Tarzan quickly gathered up the fruit, and bringing it, laid it at her feet, and then he, too, sat upon the drum beside her, and with his knife, "'opened and prepared the various fruits for her meal. "'Together and in silence they ate, "'occasionally stealing sly glances at one another, "'until finally Jane broke into a merry laugh "'in which Tarzan joined. "'I wish you spoke English,' said the girl. "'Tarzan shook his head, "'and an expression of wistful and pathetic longing "'sobered his laughing eyes.' Then Jane tried speaking to him in French, and then in German, but she had to laugh at her own blundering attempt at the latter tongue. Anyway, she said to him in English, you understand my German as well as they did in Berlin. Tarzan had long since reached a decision as to what his future procedure should be. He had had time to recollect all that he had read of the ways of men and women in the books at the cabin. He would act as he imagined the men in the books would have acted were they in his place. Again he rose and went into the trees, but first he tried to explain by means of signs that he would return shortly, and he did so well that Jane understood and was not afraid when he had gone. Only a feeling of loneliness came over her, and she watched the point where he had disappeared, with longing eyes, awaiting his return. As before, she was appraised of his presence by a soft sound behind her, and turned to see him coming across the turf with a great armful of branches. Then he went back again into the jungle, and in a few minutes reappeared with a quantity of soft grasses and ferns. Two more trips he had made, until he had quite a pile of material at hand. Then he spread the ferns and grasses upon the ground in a soft, flat bed, 
and above it leaned many branches together so that they met a few feet over its center. Upon these he spread layers of huge leaves of the great elephant's ear, and with more branches and more leaves he closed one end of the little shelter he had built. Then they sat down together again upon the edge of the drum and tried to talk by signs. The magnificent diamond locket which hung about Tarzan's neck had been a source of much wonderment to Jane. She pointed to it now, and Tarzan removed it and handed the pretty bauble to her. She saw that it was the work of a skilled artisan and that the diamonds were of great brilliancy and superbly set, but the cutting of them denoted that they were of a former day. She noticed, too, that the locket opened, and pressing the hidden clasp, she saw the two halves spring apart to reveal in either section an ivory miniature. One was of a beautiful woman, and the other might have been a likeness of the man who sat beside her, except for a subtle difference of expression that was scarcely definable. She looked up at Tarzan to find him leaning toward her, gazing on the miniatures with an expression of astonishment. He reached out his hand for the locket and took it away from her, examining the likenesses within with unmistakable signs of surprise and new interest. His manner clearly denoted that he had never before seen them, nor imagined that the locket even opened. This fact caused Jane to indulge in further speculation, and it taxed her imagination to picture how this beautiful ornament came into the possession of a wild and savage creature of the unexplored jungles of Africa. Still more wonderful was how it contained the likeness of one who might be a brother, or more likely, the father of this woodland demigod who was even ignorant of the fact that the locket opened. Tarzan was still gazing with fixity at the two faces. Presently he removed the quiver from his shoulder, and emptying the arrows upon the ground, reached into the bottom of the bag-like receptacle and drew forth a flat object wrapped in many soft leaves and tied with bits of long grass. Carefully he unwrapped it, removing layer after layer of leaves until at length he held a photograph in his hand. Pointing to the miniature of the man within the locket, he handed the photograph to Jane, holding the open locket beside it. The photograph only served to puzzle the girl still more, for it was evidently another likeness of the same man whose picture rested in the locket beside that of the beautiful young woman. Tarzan was looking at her with an expression of puzzled bewilderment in his eyes as she glanced up at him. He seemed to be framing a question with his lips. The girl pointed to the photograph, and then to the miniature, and then to him, as though to indicate that she thought the likenesses were of him. But he only shook his head, and then shrugging his great shoulders, he took the photograph from her, and having carefully rewrapped it, placed it again in the bottom of his quiver. For a few moments he sat in silence, his eyes bent upon the ground, while Jane held the little locket in her hand, turning it over and over in an endeavor to find some further clue that might lead to the identity of its original owner. At length, a simple explanation occurred to her. The locket had belonged to Lord Greystoke, and the likenesses were of himself and Lady Alice. This wild creature had simply found it in the cabin by the beach. How stupid of her not to have thought of that solution before! But to account for the strange likeness between Lord Greystoke and this forest god, that was quite beyond her. And it is not strange that she could not imagine that this naked savage was indeed an English nobleman. At length Tarzan looked up to watch the girl as she examined the locket. He could not fathom the meaning of the faces within, but he could read the interest and fascination upon the face of the live young creature by his side. She noticed that he was watching her, and thinking that he wished to have his ornament again, she held it out to him. He took it from her, and taking the chain in his two hands, he placed it about her neck, smiling at her expression of surprise at his unexpected gift. Jane shook her head vehemently, and would have removed the golden links from about her throat, but Tarzan would not let her. Taking her hands in his, when she insisted upon it, he held them tightly to prevent her. 
At last she desisted, and with a little laugh raised the locket to her lips. Tarzan did not know precisely what she meant, but he guessed correctly that it was her way of acknowledging the gift. And so he rose, and taking the locket in his hand, stooped gravely like some courtier of old, and pressed his lips upon it where hers had rested. It was a stately and gallant little compliment performed with the grace and dignity of utter unconsciousness of self. It was the hallmark of his aristocratic birth, the natural outcropping of many generations of fine breeding, an hereditary instinct of graciousness which a lifetime of uncouth and savage training and environment could not eradicate. It was growing dark now, and so they ate again of the fruit which was both food and drink for them. Then Tarzan rose, and leading Jane to the little bower he had erected, motioned her to go within. For the first time in hours, a feeling of fear swept over her, and Tarzan felt her draw away, as though shrinking from him. Contact with this girl for half a day had left a very different Tarzan from the one on whom the morning sun had risen. Now, in every fiber of his being, heredity spoke louder than training. He had not in one swift transition become a polished gentleman from a savage ape-man, but at last the instincts of the former predominated, and overall was the desire to please the woman he loved, and to appear well in her eyes. So Tarzan of the Apes did the only thing he knew to assure Jane of her safety. He removed his hunting knife from its sheath and handed it to her hilt first, again motioning her into the bower. The girl understood, and taking the long knife she entered and lay down upon the soft grasses while Tarzan of the Apes stretched himself upon the ground across the entrance. And it was there that the rising sun found them in the morning. When Jane awoke, she did not at first recall the strange events of the preceding day, and so she wondered at her odd surroundings. The little leafy bower, the soft grasses of her bed, the unfamiliar prospect from the opening at her feet. Slowly the circumstances of her position crept one by one into her mind, and then a great wonderment arose in her heart. A mighty wave of thankfulness and gratitude that though she had been in such terrible danger, yet she was unharmed. She moved to the entrance of the shelter to look for Tarzan. He was gone, but this time no fear assailed her, for she knew that he would return. In the grass at the entrance to her bower she saw the imprint of his body where he had lain all night to guard her. She knew that the fact that he had been there was all that had permitted her to sleep in such peaceful security. With him near, who could entertain fear? She wondered if there was another man on earth with whom a girl could feel so safe in the heart of this savage African jungle. Even the lions and panthers had no fears for her now. She looked up to see his lithe form drop softly from a nearby tree. As he caught her eyes upon him, his face lighted with that frank and radiant smile that had won her confidence the day before. As he approached her, Jane's heart beat faster and her eyes brightened as they'd never done before at the approach of any man. He had again been gathering fruit, and this he laid at the entrance of her bower. Once more they sat down together to eat. Jane commenced to wonder what his plans were. Would he take her back to the beach, or would he keep her here? Suddenly she realized that the matter did not seem to give her much concern. Could it be that she did not care? She began to comprehend also that she was entirely contented sitting here by the side of this smiling giant, eating delicious fruit in a sylvan paradise far from the remote depths of the African jungle that she was contented and very happy. She could not understand it. Her reason told her that she should be torn by wild anxieties, weighted by dread fears, cast down by gloomy forebodings. But instead, her heart was singing and she was smiling into the answering face of the man beside her. When they had finished their breakfast, Tarzan went to her bower and recovered his knife. The girl had entirely forgotten it. She realized that it was because she had forgotten the fear that prompted her to accept it. 
Motioning her to follow, Tarzan walked toward the trees at the edge of the arena, and taking her in one strong arm, swung to the branches above. The girl knew that he wasn't taking her back to her people, and she could not understand the sudden feeling of loneliness and sorrow which crept over her. For hours they swung slowly along. Tarzan of the apes did not hurry. He tried to draw out the sweet pleasure of that journey with those dear arms about his neck as long as possible, and so he went far south of the direct route to the beach. Several times they halted for brief rests, which Tarzan did not need, and at noon they stopped for an hour at a little brook where they quenched their thirst and ate. So it was nearly sunset when they came to the clearing, and Tarzan, dropping to the ground beside a great tree, parted the tall jungle grass and pointed out the little cabin to her. She took him by the hand to lead him to it, that she might tell her father that this man had saved her from death, and worse than death, that he had watched over her as carefully as a mother might have done. But again, the timidity of the wild thing in the face of human habitation swept over Tarzan the apes. He drew back, shaking his head. The girl came close to him, looking up with pleading eyes. Somehow she could not bear the thought of his going back into the terrible jungle alone. Still, he shook his head, and finally he drew her to him very gently and stooped to kiss her. But first he looked into her eyes and waited to learn if she were pleased or if she would repulse him. Just an instant the girl hesitated, and then she realized the truth, and throwing her arms about his neck, she drew his face to hers and kissed him, unashamed. I love you, she murmured. From far in the distance came the faint sound of many guns. Tarzan and Jane raised their heads. From the cabin came Mr. Philander and Esmeralda. From where Tarzan and the girl stood, they could not see the two vessels lying at anchor in the harbor. Tarzan pointed toward the sounds, touched his breast, and pointed again. She understood. He was going, and something told her that it was because he thought her people were in danger. Again, he kissed her. Come back to me, she whispered. I shall wait for you, always. He was gone, and Jane turned to walk across the clearing to the cabin. Mr. Philander was the first to see her. It was dusk, and Mr. Philander was very nearsighted. Quickly, Esmeralda, he cried. Let us seek safety within. It is a lioness. Bless me. Esmeralda did not bother to verify Mr. Philander's vision. His tone was enough. She was within the cabin and had slammed and bolted the door before he had finished pronouncing her name. The bless me was startled out of Mr. Philander by the discovery that Esmeralda, in the exuberance of her haste, had fastened him upon the same side of the door as was the close approaching lioness. He beat furiously upon the heavy portal. Esmeralda, he shrieked, let me in. I'm being devoured by a lion. Esmeralda thought that the noise upon the door was made by the lioness in her attempts to pursue her. So, after her custom, she fainted. Mr. Philander cast a frightened glance behind him. Horrors! The thing was quite close now. He tried to scramble up the side of the cabin and succeeded in catching a fleeting hold upon the thatched roof. For a moment he hung there, clawing with his feet like a cat on a clothesline, but presently a piece of thatch came away and Mr. Philander, preceding it, was precipitated upon his back. At the instant he fell, a remarkable item of natural history leaped to his mind. If one feigns death, lions and lionesses are supposed to ignore one, according to Mr. Philander's faulty memory. So Mr. Philander lay as he had fallen, frozen into the horrid semblance of death. As his arms and legs had been extended stiffly upward as he came to the earth upon his back, the attitude of death was anything but impressive. Jane had been watching his antics in mild-eyed surprise. Now she laughed, a little choking gurgle of a laugh, but it was enough. Mr. Philander rolled over upon his side and peered about. At length, he discovered her. Jane, he cried. Jane, Porter, bless me. He scrambled to his feet and rushed toward her. He could not believe that it was she, and alive. 
Bless me! Where did you come from? Where in the world have you been? How... Mercy, Mr. Philander, interrupted the girl. I can never remember so many questions. Well, well, said Mr. Philander. I am so filled with surprise and exuberant delight at seeing you safe and well again that I scarcely know what I'm saying, really. But come, tell me all that has happened to you. Chapter 21 The Village of Torture As the little expedition of sailors toiled through the dense jungle searching for the signs of Jane Porter, the futility of their venture became more and more apparent. But the grief of the old man and the hopeless eyes of the young Englishman prevented the kind-hearted Darnot from turning back. He thought that there might be a bare possibility of finding her body, or the remains of it, for he was positive that she had been devoured by some beast of prey. He deployed his men into a skirmish line from the point where Esmeralda had been found, and in this extended formation they pushed their way, sweating and panting through the tangled vines and creepers. It was slow work. Noon found them but a few miles inland. They halted for a brief rest then, and after pushing on for a short distance further, one of the men discovered a well-marked trail. It was an old elephant track, and Darnot, after consulting with Professor Porter and Clayton, decided to follow it. The path wound through the jungle in a northeasterly direction, and along it the column moved in single file. Lieutenant Darnot was in the lead and moving at a quick pace, for the trail was comparatively open. Immediately behind him came Professor Porter, but as he could not keep pace with the younger man, Darnot was a hundred yards in advance when suddenly a half-dozen black warriors arose about him. Darnot gave a warning shout to his column as the natives closed on him, but before he could draw his revolver, he had been pinioned and dragged into the jungle. His cry had alarmed the sailors, and a dozen of them sprang forward past Professor Porter, running up the trail to their officer's aid. They did not know the cause of his outcry, only that it was a warning of danger ahead. They had rushed past the spot where Darnot had been seized, when a spear hurled from the jungle transfixed one of the men, and then a volley of arrows fell among them. Raising their rifles, they fired into the underbrush in the direction from which the missiles had come. But this time the balance of the party had come up, and volley after volley was fired toward the concealed foe. It was these shots that Tarzan and Jane Porter had heard. Lieutenant Charpentier, who had been bringing up the rear of the column, now came running to the scene and on hearing the details of the ambush, ordered the men to follow him, and plunged into the tangled vegetation. In an instant they were in a hand-to-hand fight with some fifty black warriors of Mbonga's village. Arrows and bullets flew thick and fast. Queer African knives and French gun butts mingled for a moment in savage and bloody duels, but soon the natives fled into the jungle, leaving the Frenchmen to count their losses. Four of the twenty were dead, a dozen others were wounded, and Lieutenant Darnot was missing. Night was falling rapidly, and their predicament was rendered doubly worse when they could not even find the elephant trail which they had been following. There was but one thing to do, make camp where they were until daylight. Lieutenant Charpentier ordered a clearing made and a circular abatis of underbrush constructed about the camp. This work was not completed until long after dark, the men building a huge fire in the center of the clearing to give them light to work by. When all was safe as possible against attack of wild beasts and savage men, Lieutenant Charpentier placed sentries about the little camp and the tired and hungry men threw themselves upon the ground to sleep. The groans of the wounded mingled with the roaring and growling of the great beasts which the noise and firelight had attracted, kept sleep except in its most fitful form from the tired eyes. It was a sad and hungry party that lay through the long night, praying for dawn. The natives who had seized Darnot had not waited to participate in the fight which followed, but instead had dragged their prisoner a little way through the jungle, and then struck the trail further on beyond the scene of the fighting in which their fellows were engaged. They hurried him along, the sounds of battle growing fainter and fainter as they drew away from the contestants, until there suddenly broke upon Darnot's vision a good-sized clearing, at one end of which stood a thatched and palisaded village. It was now dusk, 
but the watchers at the gate saw the approaching trio and distinguished one as a prisoner ere they reached the portals. A cry went up within the palisade. A great throng of women and children rushed out to meet the party. And then began for the French officer the most terrifying experience which man can encounter upon earth, the reception of a white prisoner into a village of African cannibals. To aid to the fiendishness of their cruel savagery was the poignant memory of still crueler barbarities practiced upon them and theirs by the white officers of that arch-hypocrite, Leopold II of Belgium, because of whose atrocities they had fled the Congo Free State, a pitiful remnant of what once had been a mighty tribe. They fell upon Darnot tooth and nail, beating him with sticks and stones and tearing at him with claw-like hands. Every vestige of clothing was torn from him, and the merciless blows fell upon his bare and quivering flesh. But not once did the Frenchman cry out in pain. He breathed a silent prayer that he be quickly delivered from his torture. But the death he prayed for was not to be so easily had. Soon the warriors beat the women away from their prisoner. He was to be saved for nobler sport than this, and the first wave of their passion having subsided, they contented themselves with crying out taunts and insults and spitting upon him. Presently they reached the center of the village. There Darnot was bound securely to a great post from which no live man had ever been released. A number of the women scattered to their several huts to fetch pots and water, while others built a row of fires on which portions of the feast were to be boiled, while the balance would be slowly dried in strips for future use, as they expected the other warriors to return with many prisoners. The festivities were delayed awaiting the return of the warriors who had remained to engage in the skirmish with the white men, so that it was quite late when all were in the village, and the dance of death commenced to circle around the doomed officer. Half fainting from pain and exhaustion, Darnot watched from beneath half-closed lids what seemed but the vagary of delirium, or some horrid nightmare from which he must soon awake. The bestial faces, daubed with color, the huge mouths and flabby hanging lips, the yellow teeth, sharp-filed, the rolling demon eyes, the shining naked bodies, the cruel spears. Surely no such creatures really existed upon earth. He must indeed be dreaming. The savage, whirling bodies circled nearer. Now a spear sprang forth and touched his arm. The sharp pain and the feel of hot, trickling blood assured him of the awful reality of his hopeless position. Another spear, and then another, touched him. He closed his eyes and held his teeth firm set. He would not cry out. He was a soldier of France, and he would teach these beasts how an officer and a gentleman died. Tarzan of the Apes needed no interpreter to translate the story of those distant shots. With Jane Porter's kisses still warm upon his lips, he was swinging with incredible rapidity through the forest trees, straight toward the village of Mbanga. He was not interested in the location of the encounter, for he judged that that would soon be over. Those who were killed he could not aid. Those who escaped would not need his assistance. It was to those who had neither been killed or escaped that he hastened, and he knew that he would find them by the great post in the center of Mbanga village. Many times had Tarzan seen Umbanga's black raiding parties return from the northward with prisoners, and always were the same scenes enacted about that grim stake beneath the flaring light of many fires. He knew, too, that they seldom lost much time before consummating the fiendish purpose of their captures. He doubted that he would arrive in time to do more than avenge. On he sped. Night had fallen, and he traveled high along the upper terrace where the gorgeous tropic moon lighted the dizzy pathway through the gently undulating branches of the treetops. Presently he caught the reflection of a distant blaze. It lay to the right of his path. It must be the light from the campfire the two men had built before they were attacked. Tarzan knew nothing of the presence of the sailors. So sure was Tarzan of his jungle knowledge that he did not turn from his course but passed the glare at a distance of a half mile. It was the campfire of the Frenchman. In a few minutes more, Tarzan swung into the trees above Umbanga's village. Ah, he was not quite too late. Or was he? He could not tell. The figure at the stake was very still. 
yet the black warriors were but pricking it. Tarzan knew their customs. The death blow had not been struck. He could tell almost to a minute how far the dance had gone. In another instant, Umbanga's knife would sever one of the victim's ears. That would mark the beginning of the end, for very shortly after, only a writhing mass of mutilated flesh would remain. There would still be life in it, but death then would be the only charity it craved. The stake stood forty feet from the nearest tree. Tarzan coiled his rope. Then there rose suddenly above the fiendish cries of the dancing demons the awful challenge of the ape-man. The dancers halted as though turned to stone. The rope sped with singing whir high above the heads of the natives. It was quite invisible in the flaring lights of the campfires. Darnot opened his eyes. A huge black, standing directly before him, lunged backward as though felled by an invisible hand. Struggling and shrieking, his body, rolling from side to side, moved quickly toward the shadows beneath the trees. The natives, their eyes protruding in horror, watched, spellbound. Once beneath the trees, the body rose straight into the air, and as it disappeared into the foliage above, the terrified blacks, screaming with fright, broke into a mad race for the village gate. Darnot was left alone. He was a brave man, but he had felt the short hairs bristle upon the nape of his neck when that uncanny cry rose upon the air. As the writhing body of the natives soared, as though by unearthly power, into the dense foliage of the forest, Darnot felt an icy shiver run along his spine, as though death had risen from a dark grave and laid a cold and clammy finger on his flesh. As Darnot watched the spot where the body had entered the tree, he heard the sounds of movement there. The branches swayed as though under the weight of a man's body. There was a crash, and the native came sprawling to earth again, to lie very quietly where he had fallen. Immediately after him came a white body, but this one alighted erect. Darnot saw a clean-limbed young giant emerge from the shadows into the firelight and come quickly toward him. What could it mean? Who could it be? Some new creature of torture and destruction, doubtless. Darnot waited. His eyes never left the face of the advancing man, nor did the other's frank, clear eyes waver beneath Darnot's fixed gaze. Darnot was reassured, but still without much hope, though he felt that that face could not mask a cruel heart. Without a word, Tarzan of the apes cut the bonds which held the Frenchman. Weak from suffering and loss of blood, he would have fallen but for the strong arm that caught him. He felt himself lifted from the ground. There was a sensation as of flying, and then he lost consciousness. Chapter 22 The Search Party When dawn broke upon the little camp of Frenchmen in the heart of the jungle, it found a sad and disheartened group. As soon as it was light enough to see their surroundings, Lieutenant Charpentier sent men in groups of three in several directions to locate the trail, and in ten minutes it was found, and the expedition was hurrying back toward the beach. It was slow work, for they bore the bodies of six dead men, two more having succumbed during the night, and several of those who were wounded required support to move even very slowly. Charpentier had decided to return to camp for reinforcements, and then make an attempt to track down the natives and rescue Darnot. It was late in the afternoon when the exhausted men reached the clearing by the beach, but for two of them the return brought so great a happiness that all their suffering and heartbreaking grief was forgotten on the instant. As the little party emerged from the jungle, the first person that Professor Porter and Cecil Clayton saw was Jane, standing by the cabin door. With a little cry of joy and relief, she ran forward to greet them, throwing her arms about her father's neck and bursting into tears for the first time since they had been cast upon this hideous and adventurous shore. Professor Porter strove manfully to suppress his own emotions, but the strain upon his nerves and weakened vitality were too much for him, and at length, burying his old face in the girl's shoulder, he sobbed quietly like a tired child. Jane led him toward the cabin and the Frenchmen turned toward the beach from which several of their fellows were advancing to meet them. Clayton, wishing to leave father and daughter alone, 
joined the sailors and remained talking with the officers until their boat pulled away toward the cruiser, whither Lieutenant Charpentier was bound to report the unhappy outcome of his adventure. Then Clayton turned back slowly toward the cabin. His heart was filled with happiness. The woman he loved was safe. He wondered by what manner of miracle she'd been spared. To see her alive seemed almost unbelievable. As he approached the cabin, he saw Jane coming out. When she saw him, she hurried forward to meet him. "'Jane!' he cried. "'God has been good to us, indeed. "'Tell me how you escaped. "'What form Providence took to save you?' "'He had never before called her by her given name. Forty-eight hours before, "'it would have suffused Jane with a soft glow of pleasure "'to have heard that name from Clayton's lips. "'Now it frightened her. "'Mr. Clayton,' she said quietly, extending her hand. First. Let me thank you for your chivalrous loyalty to my dear father. He has told me how noble and self-sacrificing you have been. How can we repay you? Clayton noticed that she did not return his familiar salutation, but he felt no misgivings on that score. She had been through so much. This was no time to force his love upon her, he quickly realized. I am already repaid, he said. "'just to see you and Professor Porter both safe, well, and together again. "'I do not think that I could much longer have endured the pathos "'of his quiet and uncomplaining grief. "'It was the saddest experience of my life, Miss Porter, "'and then added to it, there was my own grief, "'the greatest I have ever known. "'But his was so hopeless. "'He was pitiful. "'It taught me that no love, not even that of a man for his wife, may be so deep and terrible and self-sacrificing as the love of a father for his daughter. The girl bowed her head. There was a question she wanted to ask, but it seemed almost sacrilegious in the face of the love of these two men and the terrible suffering they had endured, while she sat laughing and happy beside a godlike creature of the forest, eating delicious fruits and looking with eyes of love into answering eyes. But love is a strange master, and human nature is still stranger. So she asked her question. Where is the forest man who went to rescue you? Why did he not return? I do not understand, said Clayton. Whom do you mean? He who has saved each of us, who saved me from the gorilla. Oh, cried Clayton in surprise. It was he who rescued you. You have not told me anything of your adventure, you know. "'But the woodman,' she urged, "'have you not seen him? "'When we heard the shots in the jungle, "'very faint and far away, he left me. "'We had just reached the clearing, "'and he hurried off in the direction of the fighting. "'I know he went to aid you.' "'Her tone was almost pleading, "'her manner tense with suppressed emotion. "'Clayton could not but notice it, "'and he wondered vaguely why she was so deeply moved, "'so anxious to know the whereabouts of this strange creature.' Yet a feeling of apprehension of some impending sorrow haunted him, and in his breast, unknown to himself, was implanted the first germ of jealousy and suspicion of the ape-man, to whom he owed his own life. "'We did not see him,' he replied quietly. "'He did not join us.' And then, after a moment of thoughtful pause, "'Possibly he's joined his own tribe, the men who attacked us.' He did not know why he had said it, for he did not believe it. The girl looked at him wide-eyed for a moment. No! she exclaimed vehemently. Much too vehemently, he thought. It could not be. They were savages. Clayton looked puzzled. He is a strange, half-strange creature of the jungle, Miss Porter. We know nothing of him. He neither speaks nor understands any European tongue, and his ornaments and weapons are those of the West Coast savages. Clayton was speaking rapidly. There are no other human beings than savages within hundreds of miles, Miss Porter. He must belong to the tribes which attacked us, or to some other equally savage. He may even be a cannibal. Jane blanched. I will not believe it, she half whispered. It is not true. You shall see she said, addressing Clayton. 
that he will come back and that he will prove that you are wrong. You do not know him as I do. I tell you, he is a gentleman. Clayton was a generous and chivalrous man, but something in the girl's breathless defense of the forest man stirred him to unreasoning jealousy, so that for the instant he forgot all that they owed to this wild demigod, and he answered her with a half-sneer upon his lip. "'Possibly you are right, Miss Porter,' he said. "'But I do not think that any of us need worry about our carrion-eating acquaintance. "'The chances are that he is some half-demented castaway "'who will forget us more quickly, but no more surely than we shall forget him. "'He is only a beast of the jungle, Miss Porter.' "'The girl did not answer, but she felt her heart shrivel within her. She knew that Clayton spoke merely what he thought, and for the first time she began to analyze the structure which supported her newfound love, and to subject its object to a critical examination. Slowly she turned and walked back to the cabin. She tried to imagine her wood god by her side in the saloon of an ocean liner. She saw him eating with his hands, tearing his food like a beast of prey, and wiping his greasy fingers upon his thighs and she shuddered. She saw him as she introduced him to her friends, uncouth, illiterate, a bore, and the girl winced. She had reached her room now, and as she sat upon the edge of her bed of ferns and grasses, with one hand resting upon her rising and falling bosom, she felt the hard outlines of the man's locket. She drew it out, holding it in the palm of her hand for a moment, with tear-blurred eyes bent upon it. Then she raised it to her lips, and crushing it there, buried her face in the soft ferns, sobbing. Beast? she murmured. Then God make me a beast, for man or beast. I am yours. She did not see Clayton again that day. Esmeralda brought her supper to her, and she sent word to her father that she was suffering from the reaction following her adventure. The next morning Clayton left early with a relief expedition in search of Lieutenant Darnot. There were two hundred armed men this time, with ten officers and two surgeons, and provisions for a week. They carried bedding and hammocks, the latter for transporting their sick and wounded. It was a determined and angry company, a punitive expedition as well as one of relief. They reached the site of the skirmish of the previous expedition shortly after noon, for they were now traveling a known trail and no time was lost in exploring. From there on, the elephant track led straight to Mbanga's village. It was but two o'clock when the head of the column halted upon the edge of the clearing. Lieutenant Charpentier, who was in command, immediately sent a portion of his force through the jungle to the opposite side of the village. Another detachment was dispatched to a point before the village gate, while he remained with the balance upon the south side of the clearing. It was arranged that the party which was to take its position to the north and which would be the last to gain its station should commence the assault and that their opening volley should be the signal for a concerted rush from all sides in an attempt to carry the village by storm at the first charge. For half an hour the men with Lieutenant Charpentier crouched in the dense foliage of the jungle, awaiting the signal. To them it seemed like hours. They could see natives in the fields and others moving in and out of the village gate. At length the signal came, a sharp rattle of musketry, and like one man, in answering volley, tore from the jungle to the west and to the south. The natives in the field dropped their implements and broke madly for the palisade. The French bullets mowed them down, and the French sailors bounded over their prostrate bodies straight for the village gate. So sudden and unexpected the assault had been that the sailors reached the gates before the frightened natives could bar them, and in another minute, the village street was filled with armed men fighting hand-to-hand in an inextricable tangle. For a few moments the natives held their ground within the entrance to the street, but the revolvers, rifles, and cutlasses of the Frenchmen crumpled the native spearmen and struck down the archers with their bows half-drawn. Soon the battle turned into a wild rout and then to a grim massacre, for the French sailors had seen bits of Darnot's uniform upon several of the black warriors who opposed them. They spared the children and those of the women whom they were not forced to kill in self-defense. But when at length they stopped, panting, blood-covered and sweating, 
It was because there lived to oppose them no single warrior of all the savage village of Umbanga. Carefully they ransacked every hut and corner of the village, but no sign of Darnot could they find. They questioned the prisoners by sign, and finally one of the sailors who had served in the French Congo found that he could make them understand the tongue that passes for language between the whites and the more degraded tribes of the coast, but even then they could learn nothing definite regarding the fate of Darnot. Only excited gestures and expressions of fear could they obtain in response to their inquiries concerning their fellow. But at last they became convinced that these were but evidences of the guilt of these demons who had slaughtered and eaten their comrade two nights before. At length all hope left them, and they prepared to camp for the night within the village. The prisoners were herded into three huts where they were heavily guarded. Sentries were posted at the barred gates, and finally the village was wrapped in the silence of slumber, except for the wailing of the native women for their dead. The next morning they set out upon their return march. Their original intention had been to burn the village, but this idea was abandoned and the prisoners were left behind, weeping and moaning, but with roofs to cover them and a palisade for refuge from the beasts of the jungle. Slowly the expedition retraced its steps of the preceding day. Ten loaded hammocks retarded its pace, in eight of them lay the more seriously wounded, while two swung beneath the weight of the dead. Clayton could not but realize that the Frenchman felt his grief the more keenly because Darnot's sacrifice had been so futile, since Jane had been rescued before Darnot had fallen into the hands of the savages, and again because the service in which he had lost his life had been outside his duty, and for strangers and aliens. But when he spoke of it to Lieutenant Charpentier, the latter shook his head. No, monsieur, he said. Darnot would have chosen to die thus. I only grieve that I could not have died for him, or at least with him. I wish that you could have known him better, monsieur. He was indeed an officer and a gentleman, a title conferred on many, but deserved by so few. He did not die futilely, for his death in the cause of a strange American girl will make us, his comrades, Face our ends the more bravely, however they may come to us. Clayton did not reply, but within him rose a new respect for Frenchmen which remained undimmed ever after. It was quite late when they reached the cabin by the beach. A single shot before they emerged from the jungle had announced to those in camp, as well as on the ship, that the expedition had been too late. For it had been prearranged that when they came within a mile or two of camp, one shot was to be fired to denote failure or three for success, while two would have indicated that they had found no sign of either Darnot or his native captors. So it was a solemn party that awaited their coming, and few words were spoken as the dead and wounded men were tenderly placed in boats and rowed silently toward the cruiser. Clayton, exhausted from his five days of laborious marching through the jungle, and from the effects of his two battles with the natives, turned toward the cabin to seek a mouthful of food and then the comparative ease of his bed of grasses after two nights in the jungle. By the cabin door stood Jane. "'The poor lieutenant,' she asked. "'Did you find no trace of him?' "'We were too late to Miss Porter,' he replied sadly. "'Tell me, what had happened?' she asked. "'I cannot, Miss Porter. It is too horrible.' "'You do not mean that they had tortured him?' she whispered. We do not know what they did to him before they killed him, he answered, his face drawn with fatigue and the sorrow he felt for poor Darnot, and he emphasized the word before. Before they killed him? What do you mean? They are not... She was thinking of what Clayton had said of the forest man's probable relationship to this tribe, and she could not frame the awful word. Yes, Miss Porter, they were cannibals, he said almost bitterly, for to him too had suddenly come the thought of the forest man, and the strange, uncountable jealousy he had felt two days before swept over him once more. And then, in sudden brutality that was as unlike Clayton as courteous consideration is unlike an ape, he blurted out, When your forest god left you, he was doubtless hurrying to the feast. He was sorry ere the words were spoken, though he did not know how cruelly they had cut the girl. 
His regret was for his baseless disloyalty to one who had saved the lives of every member of his party and offered harm to none. The girl's head went high. There could be but one suitable reply to your assertion, Mr. Clayton, she said icily, and I regret that I am not a man that I might make it. She turned quickly and entered the cabin. Clayton was an Englishman, so the girl had passed quite out of sight before he deduced what reply a man would have made. Upon my word, he said ruefully, she called me a liar, and I fancy I jolly well deserved it. And he added thoughtfully, Clayton, my boy, I know you are tired out and unstrung, but that's no reason why you should make an ass of yourself. You'd better go to bed. But before he did so, he called gently to Jane upon the opposite side of the sailcloth partition, for he wished to apologize, but he might as well have addressed the Sphinx. Then he wrote upon a piece of paper and shoved it beneath the partition. Jane saw the little note and ignored it, for she was very angry and hurt and mortified. But she was a woman, so eventually she picked it up and read it. My dear Miss Porter, I had no reason to insinuate what I did. My only excuse is that my nerves must be unstrung, which is no excuse at all. Please try and think that I did not say it. I am very sorry. I would not have hurt you above all others in the world. Say that you forgive me. W. M. Cecil Clayton. He did think it, or he never would have said it, reasoned the girl. But it cannot be true. Oh, I know that it isn't true. One sentence in the letter frightened her. I would not have hurt you above all others in the world. A week ago, that sentence would have filled her with delight. Now, it depressed her. She wished she had never met Clayton. She was very sorry that she'd ever seen the forest god. No, she was glad. And there was that other note she had found in the grass before the cabin that day, after her return from the jungle. The love note signed by Tarzan of the Apes. Who could be this new suitor? If he were another of the wild denizens of this terrible forest, what might he not do to claim her? Esmeralda, wake up, she cried. You make me so irritable, sleeping there peacefully, when you know perfectly well that the world is filled with sorrow. Gabarel, screamed Esmeralda, sitting up. What is it now? A hypnoceros? Where is he, Miss Jane? Nonsense, Esmeralda. There is nothing. Go back to sleep. You're bad enough asleep, but you're infinitely worse awake. But what's the matter with you, precious? You act sort of disgranulated this evening. Oh, Esmeralda, I'm just plain ugly tonight, said the girl. Don't pay any attention to me. That's a dear. Yes, honey, now you go right to sleep. Your nerves are all on edge. What with all these ripotamuses and man-eating geniuses that Mr. Philander been telling about? Lord, it ain't no wonder we all get nervous prosecution. Jane crossed the little room, laughing and kissing the faithful woman, and bid Esmeralda good night. Join us next week for Chapter 23, Brother Men, with Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And please do take a moment, 1001 Stories for the Road listeners, to send us a review if you're enjoying this story. We would appreciate your reviews very much, and they help us out a lot. We provide four shows here at 1001 Network for free, and we would appreciate your joining us at patreon.com as a, as a supporter of our show for less than a cup of blended coffee every month. And when you support us, depending on your level of support, we provide you with two shows, The Best of 1001 Heroes, mostly ad-free, and Prime Cuts, a show especially for our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for joining us. We're glad you're enjoying Tarzan of the Apes, a tremendous story by Edgar Rice Burroughs that brought him lots of fame and fortune. We'll be back next week Sunday night. Thanks for joining us.